The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. A college student was found dead in the woods. This season, we're investigating a possible murder. But this isn't your typical true crime story. In fact, we're going to start where the story ends. Back in June, a jury found 24-year-old Gage Bethune guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Praveen Varghese. Today, a Jackson County judge threw out the guilty verdict and released Bethune on bond. So- An SIU student dies, a suspect is charged, and convicted of first-degree felony murder. But instead of facing potentially decades in prison, a judge throws out the jury's verdict and lets the convicted killer go free. I'm Javier Leva. And I'm John Taylor. And this is Criminal Conduct, Season 4, Getting Away with Murder. Subscribe to Criminal Conduct wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. This week's story starts in an unlikely place, Colombia, where we have two very small children. Five-year-old Jose, born in 1970, and his younger brother, who came along in 1972. These boys were orphans, left on the streets to fend for themselves, at least until an American family came along, moving them from South America to the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. In June 1977, the brothers were adopted through a local orphanage by the Gignacs, a middle-class couple from Michigan. Following the adoption, Jose and his brother moved to Michigan, and their names were changed. Jose became Anthony Gignac. The two boys had to learn to speak English. It was a big change. Those who knew the family during this time of transition said that it was clear his time on the streets had impacted Anthony deeply. Social status was important to Anthony. He wanted his peers to think that he was special. He told classmates that his mother owned a luxury hotel and that his father was a well-known actor. You might say these are little lies and that children sometimes fib to make themselves seem important. But by middle school, Anthony was telling some whoppers. Vanity Fair reported that when he was in grade six, Anthony called the local Mercedes dealership and explained that he was a Saudi prince whose dad was going to buy him a Mercedes. Anthony convinced a salesman to pick him up at the mall and give him a test ride. Anthony then told the salesman that, yes, he would buy the Mercedes. His father would send the money. Anthony gave the salesman his mother's phone number. And at some point, the dealership called Anthony's mother and said the Mercedes was ready for pickup. 
How Anthony's mother responded to the phone call and how Anthony explained the test rides? Well, we can't say. But when Anthony did not pick up the car or pay for it, the dealership contacted law enforcement, who contacted the Gignacs. Anthony was sent to therapy and to a special camp to address his issues. Unfortunately, while Anthony was at this camp, he spun a story about the wealth and power his family held in the community. When Anthony was 12 years old, the Gignacs divorced and he went with his mother while his younger brother went with their dad. According to Vanity Fair, this made things worse for Anthony. He later testified, The one person who meant anything to me, my brother, whom I took under my wings, was taken from me. Anthony had a mental breakdown and was sent to two psychiatric hospitals and a halfway house. In 1987, Anthony was 17 years old, and he chose to leave home. Once again, he was a street kid, but instead of finding food and shelter for himself and his brother, he took to stealing credit cards and using them to book limousines. He would ride around the Detroit area in the back of the limo, trying to pass himself off as Prince Adnan Khashoggi, a billionaire Saudi arms dealer who was the richest man in the world at the time. Before long, Detroit wasn't enough for him. Anthony set his sights on California, L.A. to be specific. His mother's partner told Vanity Fair that Anthony was drawn there by the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Once in L.A., he varied his cons. Sometimes it was a credit card bearing the name of a Saudi prince or another Middle Eastern name. Other times he would simply present himself as royalty and announce that his father would be sending payment for whatever items, meals, or hotel rooms he needed. According to the American Greed TV series, employees would often give in to Anthony, not because they believed him, but because he became very loud and aggressive if they didn't give him what he wanted. He would yell at anyone who challenged his identity by asking, Do you know who my parents are? A former assistant U.S. attorney said people ended up believing what Anthony said because it was just so crazy. The attorney said, Nobody would really believe that you were faking this, that you would draw that much attention to yourself and scream and yell, because it's so bold and opposite what you would normally expect a con man to do. That's probably why it worked. While in his early 20s, Anthony's pretending to be a prince whose family will pay the tab trick worked well for him, at least for a while. In 1991, when he was just 21 years old, he defrauded multiple businesses in Los Angeles out of more than $10,000. He stayed at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. While there, he charged meals to the room and had the staff refer to him as Your Highness. The hotel also booked limo services for him. Later, when asked about Anthony, the owner of the service referred to him as a heck of a con man. He's excellent. While shopping in Los Angeles, he convinced shop employees to give him Louis Vuitton luggage and a rare coin collection. But the con was short-lived. After only four days, they asked about the status of his bill, which was in the thousands. He was dismissive, saying his father would handle it. The hotel staff became suspicious, and they phoned the police. 
Anthony was arrested. The prosecutor charged him with four counts of grand theft, one count of credit card abuse, and one count of forgery. They offered a plea bargain which Anthony turned down. He wanted a trial. The trial began in October 1991, and the prosecution called multiple witnesses. After hearing from many of the witnesses, Anthony gave up. He chose to plead no contest to all charges. The LA Times, who were covering the trial, dubbed Anthony the Prince of Fraud. In November of 1991, he was sentenced to two years behind bars, but he would barely serve eight months. At sentencing, Anthony offered a $1,000 check to help make up the money he'd defrauded. He told the judge he'd offer up a second check, also for $1,000, if he got probation. Not surprisingly, the judge declined, telling Anthony that he needed to spend some time behind bars. By the summer of 1992, Anthony was a free man. Rather than being reformed, he decided to up his game. He forged documents that made it appear that he was a member of the Saudi royal family. These documents included firms and banks associated with the family and seals that appeared genuine. He even had credit cards in the name of Khalid bin al-Saud. He used this fake card to book a stay at the Ritz-Carlton San Francisco. He lived there for weeks until the fraudulent charges were caught. Once again, Anthony is arrested, and he served six weeks in jail. When he was released, he flew out to Hawaii, where he continued to pose as a prince. He also conned two couples out of $30,000. He tricked one couple, telling them they were buying a stake in a Saudi Arabian oil field. The other couple agreed to pay his $21,000 tab at the Hawaiian resort where he was staying. While these couples didn't suspect anything, the hotel staff were suspicious, and they ran a check on him and revealed that he wasn't a prince, he was a cheat and a fraud. Once again, the police are summoned. But they didn't arrest Anthony, and hours later, a member of the hotel staff introduced Anthony to a wealthy couple who frequently stayed there. Anthony asked the couple if they would cover his hotel stay and he offered up expensive pieces of jewelry as collateral. They agreed, not realizing it was all a setup. When the couple eventually found out that Anthony was a scammer, they sued the hotel and won a sizable settlement in return. Anthony was not deterred by his time in jail or by his run-ins with the police. He moved his scam once again, this time headed to Florida. In 1993, 23-year-old Anthony stayed at the Walt Disney World Grand Floridian Beach Resort, where he racked up almost $15,000 in charges before he was arrested. Once he was released from custody, he relocated to another hotel and spent almost $30,000. He also treated himself at the local mall, dropping $50,000 at Saks Fifth Avenue. He met a couple of men at the mall and invited them back to his hotel to party. Rather than enjoying a good time, the two men assaulted and robbed Anthony. Police were called to the hotel and told that a member of the Saudi royal family, a prince, had been attacked. 
Thinking they had an international incident on their hands, they called the Saudi embassy. The embassy told police they had no idea what they were talking about. The real prince was not in Florida. By the time police went back to the hotel to place Anthony under arrest, he was long gone. One of the officers who worked on this specific case told the Spokesman Review, I've busted people claiming to be many things. I once had a businessman with four resumes in his briefcase and a mustache and beard kit. But to impersonate royalty? That's pretty bold. Months later, Anthony is arrested in Chicago, likely for the same bad behavior. He was extradited to Florida to face charges. Rather than wait in jail for his trial, he started calling lawyers and listeners, you're going to love this. Anthony told these lawyers that he was a Saudi prince being held on charges. If the lawyer agreed to pay his bond and get him released, Anthony's family, the royal family of Saudi Arabia, would wire the funds. He made dozens of calls, but finally he found someone who agreed to put up the nearly $50,000 bond. But once Anthony was released, they didn't just let him go. They took him back to the law office to await payment from his father. When the payment didn't arrive, Anthony was quick to ask them to take him to the local American Express office. When they arrived at the office, he explained that he'd lost his card and needed a new one. American Express staff were skeptical. When they didn't do as he asked, he started screaming at them about the anger of his father, the king. That's when the employees asked Anthony the security questions on the prince's account. And listeners, Anthony got them right. You see, he'd paid off a couple of people at American Express to help in his scam. So they handed Anthony a card with a $200 million credit limit. That's right, $200 million. And once again, Anthony Gignac is a free man. And listeners, we'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. With his $200 million credit card in hand, Anthony was back in business. He paid the bond and stopped by a local jeweler where he bought two Rolex watches, gifts for his friends at American Express, and a new diamond and emerald bracelet for himself. He and the bondsman traveled the country by limousine, they stayed at luxury hotels and they flew first class. But this didn't last long. The fraudulent charges were reported and the card was declined. This is how the bail bondsman learned that Anthony was not a prince. So they took him back to jail. He would be sentenced to 616 days for fraud and grand theft, stemming from the Saks Fifth Avenue purchases, among others. But being behind bars did not slow his role. While in jail in 1994, he posed as Prince El Saud and called Syracuse University. He told them he wanted to donate $45 million to the school, but only if they would wire him a portion of the taxes for donation. This is about $16,000. And the school did send the money to his bank account back in Michigan. How that, the bank account back in Michigan, didn't set off red flags, we'll never know. This bank account in Michigan was opened by Anthony's younger brother. Both Anthony and his brother were charged with wire fraud for the Syracuse incident. Anthony was sentenced to three years and ten months behind bars. 
While serving that sentence, he tried to escape prison by covering his cell floor with shampoo and lighting his cell on fire. You see, by doing this, Anthony thought he could distract the guards and make his escape. For this stunt, he was given an additional three years. In 2002, Anthony, who is now 32 years old, is released on parole. Instead of heading for another hotel and another scam, he moved home, back in with his mom. But it didn't take long before he was back to presenting himself as a prince. In the summer of 2002, he was arrested in Florida after charging almost $30,000 at two outlet malls. He also tried to buy a Lamborghini using a faux wire transfer. While waiting for the transfer, he was given a Mercedes convertible to drive. You see, Anthony had shown the dealership a platinum Amex with the name of Prince El Saud on the card. Plus, he knew so much about the royal family that he could pass. Anthony was arrested and charged with grand theft, using a false name to get a credit card, and more. In December of 2002, Anthony pleaded no contest to using a false name to get a credit card. This was a misdemeanor. The serious charges, including grand theft, were dropped because someone had paid off the entire American Express bill. According to a prosecutor, it was paid on time or within a week of the bill being due. Prosecutors do not know how the bill was paid. Hours after the pleading, Anthony was released from jail, and he went back to Michigan. In 2003, Anthony hit up my favorite Michigan shopping destination, the Somerset Collection. While there, he again poses as Prince El Saud. He spends $11,000 at Saks Fifth Avenue. Then he heads to Neiman Marcus. While at Neiman Marcus, he spent almost $20,000 using a credit card with a real account number tied to the Saudi royal family. But while he was shopping, someone at the store was not treating Anthony the way he expected to be treated, and he caused a scene. Police were called, and he was arrested. When asked how he had the actual credit card number for a member of the Saudi royal family, he says that's because he knows them and is using the card with their permission. Then, Anthony spins a story. He says that he had an affair with a Saudi prince, and the royal family now supports him to buy his silence and discretion. Not surprisingly, the claims are looked into. The Saudi embassy, who has to be tired of Anthony at this point, is once again the recipient of a phone call. An assistant to the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia told authorities that Anthony was not a member of the royal family, nor associated in any way with the Saudi royal family. This time, Anthony is charged with impersonating a diplomat. While awaiting trial, Anthony mailed a letter to Citibank demanding that $3.9 million from the Real Prince's Trust Fund be wired to him. Anthony was caught making this demand, and he was charged with bank fraud. In 2006, Anthony pleaded guilty to attempted bank fraud and impersonating a foreign diplomat. He was sentenced to six years, five months in federal prison. Anthony was released in December of 2011. He was quickly back in prison after the FBI found a binder that was filled with forged documents. Anthony had used these forged documents to get credit cards and things like that. He was given another year in prison for having the binder. 
Anthony, being Anthony, asked that the binder be returned to him, but his request was denied. In 2013, Anthony is 43 years old. He's finally out of prison and has a four-year parole period where he has to stay out of trouble. So what do you think Anthony did? If you guessed flying to Florida and impersonating a prince, you were right. He tried to buy a $200 million resort with fraudulent funds and was immediately caught and returned to Michigan. At a court hearing to discuss violating his parole, Anthony told the judge that he went to Florida to help treat his depression and so he could see his brother. He said he was done impersonating princes. He said, quote, I have changed. I was not a threat to the community, Your Honor. I have history. Yes, I have made a lot of horrible mistakes. The worst mistake that I've ever made was going to prison and not being there for my mother when she died. I promised my mother that I would never, ever come back to prison for a new crime. The prosecution, of course, said Anthony was lying. He had been impersonating the prince and trying to run a $200 million scam. They said he needed to be in prison so he could stop defrauding people. The judge agreed and gave Anthony a year for the probation violation. Once he had served his year behind bars, he was out and back at it again. At this point, Anthony is older, and we hope that he is wiser. Rather than defrauding hotels and businesses, he wanted something more, something big. He wanted to defraud the ultra-rich. But first, he needed to find someone who could introduce him to rich people. In 2015, Anthony, posing as Prince Al Saud, met the person he needed, Carl Martin Williamson, a 51-year-old asset manager who had a lot of wealthy international contacts. Now, we're not sure if Carl knew the truth about Anthony not being a prince. According to Carl's wife, he truly believed that Anthony was Prince Al Saud. Anthony showed Carl a bank statement showing a $600 million balance. Carl is excited to have this new friend, and he's eager to make introductions on his behalf. Even though they've only met recently, Carl will tell people he'd known the prince and his family for 20 years, and this is a flat-out lie. Carl established an investment company for Anthony, Martin Williamson International. The company is exclusive. It is only for the richest people. Martin Williamson International, or MWI, was set up like this. Anthony and Carl would tell investors that the prince, who was actually Anthony, had a significant stake in Saud Aramco, an oil company controlled by the Saudi family. They told potential investors that Saud Aramco was set to go public, and they were offering discounted shares, offering investors five times what they put into the company. And as a side note, Saud Aramco did eventually go public, but it was years after the scam was created. Also, we don't know what Carl knew. Did he knowingly scam investors, or was he just as suckered as the investors themselves? Carl would tell these investors that it was customary for people doing business with the prince to give him super extravagant gifts. And by super extravagant, we mean things like paintings by famous artists, pieces of jewelry, or large sums of cash. These investors were told they would be holding the prince in high esteem if they offered him luxury gifts. 
But Saudi Aramco was not the only investment on offer. There was also a platform for trading jet fuel, a casino in Malta, and an Irish pharmaceutical company. It was the same setup: buy a stake in this company for cheap and get a huge return. But any money that was given to MWI did not go into any real investments. The money went in Anthony's pocket. He used the money to maintain his life of luxury, which in turn helped him continue conning people into believing that he was a prince. And listeners, he lived like a prince. He drove a Bentley or a Rolls Royce. He traveled with an entourage, and he used private jets and yachts, which he, of course, claimed to own. In the age of social media, Anthony became a darling. He created an Instagram account called Prince Dubai O Seven, where he flaunted his wealth and status. But he was very careful not to show his face in any of those photos. According to the New York Times, he had business cards labeled Prince or His Royal Highness. He also had a penchant for taking fake phone calls from notable people like billionaires, presidents. And high-profile executives, his father, the king, was known to ring him up on occasion. To help Anthony connect with more investors, Carl introduced him to a woman we'll call Linda. Linda's specialty was connecting high-net-worth people to investment opportunities. According to Vanity Fair, she opened major doors for Anthony, Carl, and MWI. Now I don't think that Linda was part of the scam, and she's never been charged, and her name is not public information. In February of 2017, Anthony completed the parole that he had violated almost constantly since his release. To mark the occasion, he started looking at homes on exclusive and desirable Fisher Island off the coast of Miami. His first choice was a 21 million dollar condo, but he didn't have the money. He went with his second choice, renting a three-bedroom penthouse in a Fisher Island high-rise for fifteen thousand dollars a month. He, of course, told everyone that he owned the entire building. Weeks after coming off parole, he set his sights on the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. In March of 2017, Anthony told Carl and Linda that he wanted to buy a stake in the Fountain Blue. Hearing his request, Linda placed a call to Jeffrey Sofer, who owned the hotel. Now, Jeffrey's family was worth four point two billion dollars, and yes, that's billion with a B dollars. Anthony had no intention of actually buying into the hotel; he just wanted expensive gifts from Jeffrey during negotiations. According to Vanity Fair, the Fountain Blue had been struggling with debt for years. So when Linda called Jeffrey and said Prince Al Saud wanted to buy a thirty percent stake in the hotel for four hundred forty million, Jeffrey was very interested. A thirty percent stake was only worth about three hundred million, making this a great deal for Jeffrey. It can be hard to understand why someone extremely wealthy like Jeffrey would fall for Anthony's scam, but I thought this quote from Robin Farzad, author of Hotel Scarface. Helps explain why something like this could happen. Robin told Vice that Miami doesn't have the due diligence culture like Wall Street in New York. If you are a developer and someone is offering you cash with no mortgage or no documentation involved, you are very happy to take that cash. Miami is the hot money capital of the world. 
Statistics show that Florida is one of the easiest places in the United States to scam people. Vice reported that in 2016 and 2017, Florida was ranked first and second, respectively, for fraud and identity theft complaints by the Federal Trade Commission. So, after Jeffrey told Linda he was interested in the offer to purchase a stake in the hotel, Prince El Saud called Jeffrey personally. Over the next few months, they would get the ball rolling on the prince's investment. In May, Anthony, Carl, Linda, and Anthony's bodyguards went to the Fountain Blue. Anthony paid for rooms and food for everyone. He charged it all to a credit card under Al Saud's name. While there, Anthony told everyone he was making a deal with his good friend, Jeffrey Sofer. On August 11th, Anthony invited Jeffrey and his business associates to his place on Fisher Island. He said he wanted to discuss the terms of their deal. Anthony gave the associates a tour of his garage, which was filled with luxury cars. He also took them to his penthouse. The name Sultan was on the door buzzer. Inside his place, Anthony showed them proof he could make the $440 million investment. He then showed them an ornate box which contained a letter purportedly from the Bank of Dubai guaranteeing the availability of $600 million. Anthony told Jeffrey and his associates that before he could make the investment, Jeffrey needed to show his respect through gifts. So that day, Jeffrey gave Anthony some really nice gifts like jewelry and paintings. Some sources say he gave $50,000 worth of gifts, while others put the number closer to $150,000. But here is where it starts to unravel. On August 13th, Jeffrey flew Anthony and some hotel executives to Aspen on Jeffrey's private jet. They were to continue investment discussions there. At this point, according to Vanity Fair, Jeffrey and his executives were starting to have doubts about Anthony. You see, they looked into the high-rise he claimed to own on Fisher Island, and they found that he didn't actually own it. He just rented his penthouse. Their suspicions only increased while they were in Aspen. One night, over dinner, the prince ordered a pork dish. This was very suspicious to everyone, as the prince was a Muslim, and Muslims do not eat pork. When they asked him why he was able to eat pork, Anthony became indignant and started to yell that no one should question the prince. On August 15th, everyone returned to Miami. Anthony offered to drive one of Jeffrey's executives home in his Ferrari, which had diplomatic license plates. During the drive, the executive complained that Anthony was driving recklessly. Anthony responded by saying nothing would happen if he was pulled over because he had diplomatic immunity. This made the executive even more suspicious. Even Jeffrey felt that something was off, so he hired D.C. Page, a former federal agent who runs a firm that specializes in providing business intelligence. Page figured out that Anthony was not a diplomat, nor was he a member of the Saudi royal family. Once Page had completed his report on Anthony for Jeffrey, he sent a copy of it to the State Department and the FBI. The Diplomatic Security Service, which is an agency I've never heard of but is apparently a big deal, took over the case. DSS agents tracked Anthony and Carl from Dubai to Hong Kong. The pair, along with Anthony's entourage, were traveling to meet with investors trying to get more money from them. 
They were taken into custody in New York in November of 2017. Anthony was held and Carl was released. When investigators searched Anthony's penthouse on Fisher Island, they found two fake license plates and a fraudulent DSS special agent badge, as well as unauthorized credit cards and financial documents in the name of a member of the Saudi royal family. They also found thousands of dollars in cash, along with jewelry and artwork. According to Vanity Fair, investigators would later find out that about half of the expensive jewelry Anthony owned was fake. To save money on keeping up appearances, he often bought the cheapest Rolex available and then had a jeweler glue inexpensive diamonds to the Rolex. He leased or borrowed luxury cars and yachts under various pretenses and then explained their disappearance by saying that he had grown tired of them. On December 14th, Carl's house was raided by federal agents. He was interrogated for six hours while his house was searched. When they were done, Carl was not taken into custody. That evening, Carl told his wife that he didn't know Anthony was lying about being a prince. He then went into a room in their house, and Carl took his own life. Authorities ended up finding enough evidence to charge Carl as a co-conspirator in the MWI scam, but after his death, Anthony faced charges alone. Anthony was charged with conspiring to commit a crime against the United States, passing himself off as a foreign diplomat, misuse of a passport, aggravated identity theft, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. In total, Anthony, Carl, and MWI would scam 26 investors from at least five countries out of $8 million. In March of 2019, 48-year-old Anthony Gignac pleaded guilty to one count each of impersonating a foreign diplomat or foreign government official, aggravated identity theft, wire fraud, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. In May, he was sentenced to over 18 years in prison. Anthony spoke at the sentencing hearing, saying, quote, The entire blame of this entire operation is on me, and I accept that. But then he insisted that other people should have been charged along with him, and he added, I am not a monster. Following the sentence, the U.S. Attorney's Office released a statement that read, in part, Over the course of the last three decades, Anthony Gignac has portrayed himself as a Saudi prince to manipulate, victimize, and scam countless investors from around the world. As the leader of a sophisticated, multi-person international fraud scheme, Anthony used his fake persona, Prince Khalid bin al-Saud, to sell false hope. He sold his victims on hope for their families, careers, and future. As a result, dozens of unsuspecting investors were stripped of their investments, losing more than $8 million. Today, in a federal court of law, justice spoke for the victims, and Anthony Gignac will now face years in prison. As of this recording, Anthony is incarcerated at FCI Florence in Colorado. His release date is scheduled for February 28, 2032, when Anthony is 61 years old. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.